Oh, they'll fake it. Bates throws it. He's got him. Wide open. He's got Charlie Gant inside the 10. He can walk in. Spartans win. Touchdown, MSU. Whoa, he has trouble with the snap. And the ball is free. It's picked up by Michigan Stakes. Jalen wants Jackson. And he scores on the last play of the game. Unbelievable. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to Green and White Noise, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. My name is Chris Vanini. I am not joined by Colton Pouncey today. I am your host, and it's time to talk uh, Michigan State football and uh, some sad news around Michigan State uh, today uh, regarding the death of former MSU player, coach, AD, trustee, uh, George Perlis. And coming up in a minute, uh, I have an interview with Lynn Henning, uh, who covered Perlis for a long time at the Detroit News. Uh, talk with Lynn about kind of what it was like to cover him at the time. Uh, but first, if anyone listening is going to be in New Orleans for the national championship game, uh, this weekend, I want to let you know the Athletic College Football will be live uh, Saturday, January 11th at the House of Blues, New Orleans, for a live episode of The Audible with Bruce and Stu and The Andy Staple Show. Uh, we also got some special guests, some former players, some athletic writers. Uh, I will not be there, though. Uh, doors open at noon central. Show starts at 1. Some of the players who will be there will be C.J. Spiller, Former Clemson All-American. Uh, also have some Q&As with Bruce and Stu. Uh, for tickets, make sure you get your tickets. Go to theathletic.com slash houseofblues or click the link in the show notes. Uh, make sure you get your tickets in advance because we are expecting the show to sell out. So if you're in New Orleans, uh, check out the House of Blues for two live athletic shows at theathletic.com slash houseofblues. So now we're going to go to my interview with Lynn Henning. Lynn was a writer at the Detroit News for decades, wrote a lot about Michigan State, was very close to the program during Perlis's time, has written some good books uh, on a tumultuous period for MSU Athletics. Uh, There's a lot to say about Perlis, but both good and bad. Uh, The Detroit Free Press, which which broke the news, I thought their obituary did a good job on touching all of it, Uh, you know, from his success on the football field to – support for the Special Olympics to alleged steroid abuse by players in the 80s, clashes with administration, and even some controversy over the way some things were handled when he was a trustee. Uh, there, there's a lot to say good and bad, but but I wanted to talk with Lynn just to get some insight and some stories on, on what it was like to cover Perlis in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, after the news came down on Wednesday, Lynn, Lynn tweeted that he had spoken on the phone with Perlis when he didn't get the job first in 1980. He picked Pearls up from the airport when he did get the job in December 82. So Lynn's got some interesting, interesting stories, uh, you know, a real up-close look at how things used to work under Pearls and what it was like. Uh, so I find it really just interesting to, to see what it was like at the time. So let's get to my interview with Lynn Henning. And we are joined by Lynn Henning, former Detroit news writer who covered Michigan State for many decades, really, and now is uh, retired and living in Georgia. But uh, appreciate having Lynn Henning out here to talk about George Perlis and what it was like to cover him at the time. You know, we had him a lot longer than probably we expected uh, because 85 is a lot of longevity. And, and, and really, George, you you, you, you would have wondered if, if he was going to have a real long life. I mean, he, uh, all of the things that physically 
uh, can mount. Uh, he just never, ever was afflicted by them to any extraordinary degree. And so he had these 85 great years. And um, boy, is that uh, something special because he was the kind of guy you appreciated every single day. Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. saw you had. I saw you had. Um, you tweeted this morning uh, about what it was like covering him back in the in the eighties. I know you were a Detroit news writer. You were a Detroit news writer at the time. You talked about picking him up at the airport uh, when yeah. you got the job. I was kind of curious what that story was. Yeah, it was uh, really uh, an indicator of how differently um, media and and football operated, and because it was primarily newspapers. Uh, that was the big ticket, and therefore, newspapers were a f- football coach's first area of response uh, to his audience, uh, unless it was a big, big, big ticket radio outfit like, let's say, WJR. But otherwise, newspapers really were the source and origin uh, for getting to your audience. And for that matter, um, and, and because of that, I should say, uh, George was inclined to be very responsive to a phone call. So I'd gotten to know him very well uh, in January of 1980 after Daryl Rogers left. And Joe Falls had correctly identified, and and some of us were right there in, in tandem with him, seeing that the guy that they needed to hire was George Perlis. Not only did he have Michigan State roots and knew the Biggie Munn, Duffy Doherty terrain intimately because he played for them both, but um, he had coached in Detroit and, and was from Detroit, so he knew the recruiting landscape. And now he had these four Super Bowl ring with Chuck and had really very much been uh, – integral to that steel curtain and to that uh, uh, front four of theirs. Um, So it all added up. There was one, he was in his 40s. The the, the guy that they needed to hire unequivocally was George Perlis. And everyone knew it. So I'm on the phone, I'm covering Michigan State. And I'm on the phone with him virtually every day. Um, And he's back and forth with me, too. And, and with Joe, uh, we're maintaining tabs here, trying to figure out how the interview went. Uh, you know, and it looked like an absolute certainty. There was no question George Perlis was going to be the next football coach. And on that afternoon, on January 26, 1980, this bull from the blue comes. It's muddy waters mm-hmm. from Hillsdale College in Saginaw Valley State. And if Krakatoa had exploded, it, it wouldn't have been any more of a stunner than that one. Um, it, it just made, frankly, no sense. It was uh, crushing, beyond cru- beyond cruel to, to George and to Sally Perlis. And it really kind of crushed the, the MSU constituency, too because they had seen visibly that this was the right match. And the idea that Muddy Waters was going to in any way, shape, or form be his equal as a recruiter, as a coach, as a face of Michigan State football was preposterous. And 
so really at that very day for me the the the, the bedside vigil over Muddy's tenure began. There was no way he was going to succeed. Yeah. None, at least in my view. And of course, predictably, uh, three years later, uh, after everything had steadily come unraveled, uh, they need a new football coach. Now yeah. this time, and I've always had this question, what changed? Uh, ba- go back to that original decision if you want to go back into this history. Cecil Mackey was the president in 1980 from Texas, uh, did not care much for sports. I think he was a little fearful of George and his rough edges. I think Doug Weaver, his teammate and friend, uh, was also a little leery because George had his rough edges, which had been very visible and, and widely regarded. Now, hadn't slipped into anything felonious or anything like that. But George was a rough guy from Detroit, and I think they had wanted maybe a guy who was going to be a little more malleable, maybe a guy that had a little more personal polish, etc. By 82, they knew the consequence of their mistake, and there was no doubt who they were going to go after. There was one complication, of course. He had just been made head football coach of the Philadelphia Stars of the USFL. Right was making a nice paycheck from them and um now things were going to be a little more complex so they had to buy out miles tannenbaum uh, indemnify him on the contract but george as he had said to miles tannenbaum uh, i am coming to michigan state if i have to walk there uh, this was his dream job his fantasy and uh, he was not going to be afforded well, you can imagine the widespread elation when they finally did the right thing and made him head football coach. And immediately, the whole tenor of Michigan State University <clears throat> changed. Uh, it, it soared, surged, because uh, they knew they had the right guy. And he was. It was going to take some time to get things resurrected because uh, he inherited a horrible situation. But he did institute that stunt 4-3, which was a tough defense for a lot of the uh, offensive coordinators Mm -hmm. to adjust to at that particular point. It maximized their personnel. It it gave him um, a little bit of a guerrilla tactic with an undersized defensive front. And uh, it it worked. They had a a nice resurrected first season. And then um, after a series of the usual ups and downs that happened in that kind of conference at that particular time. He has his breakthrough in 87, his fifth year. Mm -hmm. And uh, with Nick running the uh, defense. Yeah, Nick Saban, Saban, of course, whom George, again, this is an example, too, of his brilliance. He made Nick his defensive coordinator at 32. might have been that fall he turned 33. And uh, that was obviously a very, very astute choice, but it was uh, something uh, out of the mainstream to have a guy that young running your defense. But he knew how good Nick was. And that's an example of George, too. Uh, you know, it, it was he who really laid the groundwork for, for Nick coming there. And, and I think for Nick, uh, you know, getting a lot of the jump start that he got because George placed so much authority within him mm-hmm. at such an early age. Yeah, Nick, Nick had been the – he was a, the defensive backs coach at Navy before that. So right. he, he was kind of 
You're right. Out of, out of, out of nowhere. What, what were, I mean, what were some of the characteristics as someone who was around him a lot when he was a coach? You mentioned those uh, rough edges. Uh, a, a lot of people maybe only remember him in his <laughs> later years and stuff like that. But, but when he was kind of in the thick of it, you know, what, what, what was he like to deal with? Well, there, there, there was the, there was the one-on-one George who, who was invariably uh, terrific. But he, he, he had grown up in a very, very tough region of Detroit along Werner Highway down near Tiger Stadium. He, he had grown up in, in a really roughneck neighborhood in uh, Detroit there along, again, that Werner Highway corridor. And believe me, Chris, that was <laughs> about as hard scrabble as, as Detroit came. He was known as the toughest guy in that neighborhood, except for one fastest gun in the West named Kevin McGuffigan. <laughs> and, and it was Kevin and George who were unquestioned uh, as the, the two guys that you didn't want uh, to get into any kind of spats with. Now, George had his share of those. Um, but nothing of, as I said, the felonious nature. The, the, the barroom scrabbles squabbles and scraps did occur uh, but nothing that would have led to handcuffs or anything like that you know what I mean it was just a different era yeah. back there so I think there was definitely that residue and uh, Weaver was aware of that and, and Cecil Mackey probably wanted uh, again somebody not only with uh, a little more of a button down profile but somebody who was going to be more malleable maybe than George would be too and um, there was no question George was going to come in there and, and straighten that thing out and it was going to take some degree of autonomy uh, Weaver was okay with that uh, and, and by that point uh, so was the rest of Michigan State's official them. and so they were able to to make the deal but again it, it's incredibly instructive to look at college football's timeline and know that george at that point was going to be the highest paid football coach in the big 10 at ninety thousand dollars a year <laughs> of course when he left michigan state in 71 to join chuck's staff in pittsburgh he was making eleven thousand. you couldn't have had a better friend or known a more genial guy um you'd like to have a, a beer or scotch or whatever that was always him very convivial uh, and and yet football really was his uh, absolute delight and expression and uh he he came up with the thought i think it was certainly nurtured by biggie and and more by doherty that uh he had about him the capacity to coach and intriguingly, he was a better student than people realized, and very, very, very uh, astoundingly to me, he really was a good businessman. Uh, he came up with a lot of marketing ideas, uh, and that's mm -hmm. why that AD job was such a surprise, uh, because he really did have more of a facility for that than anyone would have imagined. It, w it was stunning. Um, well, what course, is, there, uh, is there anything you remember uh, about that, uh, marketing-wise? You know, if, if I went back and checked the books out a little bit on him, yeah. but 
But he had, for instance, I can tell you the other thing. He had the idea of giving tickets to the servicemen, I think, at that Sun Bowl. Oh. You know, get 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 people into the stands. Mm-hmm. And he said, and do something that made sense for servicemen who aren't on big budgets. And uh, that made abundant sense. It was it was common sense, and it was uh, an example of how George thought. Um, but he was remarkably progressive and thoughtful, and uh, that job uh, fit him far better than than people realized. The problem was he tried to straddle two fences. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. In the 90s, I know know, he was flirting with the NFL. He gets the athletic director job. There were some clashes with the administration over things. What do you kind of remember about all that? Well, he, he did know that it was going to be exceedingly difficult to get back to a Rose Bowl. He had caught lightning in a bottle in 87. That defense was just ungodly. And uh, his personnel and Nick's uh, artistry with the defense was the whole story. And he knew that was not going to be easily duplicated when Michigan and Ohio State still were uh, definitely in command. He did also have enough affinity for the NFL to where the, when the Packers came calling, he was intrigued, to say the least. He knew he didn't have to recruit. He knew he knew his way around the NFL block as well as anyone. And at that point, he was a hot potato. It, it did add up until Michigan State. And Weaver came back with a 10-year rollover contract, which, again, he was – a pioneer, and not only in terms of getting that ninety thousand in '82, but in getting a rollover contract and annuities. He was big on annuities. George had more of a sense for the need for money to be your family's bedrock than anybody I've ever seen. Uh, he really did love it for that reason. It gave him and his family and his grandkids a foundation, and I'm sure that had to do with the fact that he'd been born in the Depression and, again, grew up um, in a pretty hardcore atmosphere. And so money and security to him was everything. And so Michigan State comes away and gives him this rollover contract with annuities and all of these uh, attractions, and he decides to stay. And things went reasonably well there. He, he kind of lived off that capital for a few seasons. And they, they did have good teams. But uh, he was now running uh, Foursquare into um, autonomy problems. And he saw the AD's job as, as being... Um, really a safeguard against that. It gave him a, a, a lot more ammo to use against uh, a president that he, he was beginning to fall short of. It, the, the president was John DiBiagio then, was dead set against George being both AD, excuse me, AD and head, head football coach. And, uh, and so, Chris, the way that worked was the Board of Trustees course was over john mm-hmm. and they uh, in their cozy way up there and you're very familiar with the way the politics work <laughs> up there they decide to uh 
push the button and make him AD and head football coach. And DiBiagio, of course, never forgot that. And ultimately, when he prevailed and George was ousted, uh, who did he bring in? Uh, really, as much as anything to, to really uh, vex George was a woman AD, Marilee Dean Baker. And that's where George, for all of his wonderful personal amiability, uh, didn't cotton uh, to uh, having Marilee Dean Baker as his boss. That coincided with a probationary sentence, not for, again, for anything that was terribly criminal, but it was an example that he had slipped a little at the switch. And stuff was happening. It went, you, know, you went through that steroids era, too. Mm-hmm. That was part of the 87 team, and that didn't do him any favors in terms of his status or profile or his reputation. It kind of went part and parcel with things that Michigan State had been afraid of all along. But it wasn't on a scale of any grandiose NCAA violations, uh, um, the things that put them on probation, but it was an example of a guy that shouldn't have been doing two jobs. Very, very, very simple. And consequently, now things uh, were really beginning to erode in all fashions. He's no longer AD, and his football team is paying the price for him letting off the gas there, which I think just simply comes with age and time and mm-hmm. fatigue. And so that's when it all ended in very bleak fashion for him, except typical of him, typical of him. He doesn't really detonate bridges with Michigan State's constituency. Uh, his lawyers sue the university, which is is absolutely stunning in 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 in, in the uh, contradictions that are all about George and Michigan State. But even once that was settled, you still got this guy who uh, Michigan State always seemed to wrap their arms around, and and he them. There was never any of the animus that you might have expected would have really grown from a separation mm-hmm. uh, that uh, volatile. That was the incredible paradox to me, to George. Um, and so what happens? He's still around. He loves everyone. They love him. And he ends up getting elected to the board of trustees. Right. Kind of the ultimate uh, full circle. Uh, full circle know, and all there. the way. And, and, and an example that Georgia's circle was always, always destined most happily to be Michigan State. Yeah, he, he he was he was a player, coach, trustee. Um, what do you kind of athletic director? What, what do you kind of look at his you know his lasting legacy uh, at Michigan State? Um, still primarily football. And there's no doubt that football was his largest imprint. Uh, he, he did arrive at a, a very critical juncture for that program. They had been uh, eating an awful lot of dirt for a lot of years. And uh, George came back, and unlike a, a guy like Darrell coming from the West Coast, um, even Stoltz, even though he's from the area, um, he didn't have the MSU pedigree, of course, that George did by virtue of the fact he had played there, had gone to school there, and had coached there previously. And when you uh, married that to the fact that this was a Detroiter, too, 
who is going to come in and realize the difference in Michigan State's recruiting fortunes and whose dividend five years later uh, was to get that team to the Rose Bowl in the five years that he had always said it would take uh, was truly remarkable. And then, of course, he won that Rose Bowl, too, which you know, Duffy hadn't been able to do in his last crack out there, uh, which had come 21 years earlier, 22 years earlier. And so football uh, continued to be really his largest footprint there. And it extended. That uh, game in which the bowl game a year or two later, they won, or when they beat uh, Southern Cal, it was two years later. Uh, great win. Great win over that Marinovich's team. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really an example of how good yet they were. They beat Michigan with Jim Miller there, I believe. Um, you know, he, he was still staying competitive uh, with... Uh, Michigan, uh, even uh, toward the latter years, until things really kind of came asunder there, uh, right at the end. And that was, again, back to our earlier point, Chris, there had just been too much turbulence. Uh, He was stretched too thin. And in trying to do that AD job and the, the football job, which he believed he could do because Paterno had done it. Yeah. And uh, he, he, he felt there was precedent and he felt he was up to it. But he really wanted to seal himself off uh, from the kind of interference he might have uh, anticipated from having an AD other than Doug Weaver there. Yeah. You know, he, Weaver and he were so close that he knew that was an ideal situation. He wasn't looking forward to the kind of relationship with a new AD that he, in fact, ended up having and pretty much engendered with merely Dean Baker. And that was, again, DiBiagio's revenge. Yeah. Well, what, what are your you know, final memories as you look back at, at your interactions with him personally and just kind of what it was like uh, working with him? He was one of my favorite all-time people. How's that? Um, and, and, I mean, honestly, he was. Um, and I say that having had the blessings of a lot of years with a lot of people. And, George, I would place on any list of all-time favorites. I loved his conviviality, uh, his affability. I loved his consistency in that regard. People he placed on an enormously noble pedestal uh, in, in everyone he believed was worthy of respect. And I know some people might snort at that a, a little bit, uh, you know, perhaps because of combativeness, you know, either on the field or sometimes away from it. But no, he, he had a, a great sense of humility and a deep appreciation for the common person. And I think that's why he consistently remained in Michigan State's circle and galaxy even after all of the commotion because people so liked him. And when you are as devoted as he is to people, and I think, too, to good times, George liked to have a splash and liked to share food with you and loved stories and loved to laugh. And that speaks of a person who celebrated things that not every football coach is going to relish on quite the same level. But he had a wholesome adoration for people. 
and for the good times that people together would bring to him and into his soul. And that, I think, became so reciprocal that it explains why he's a Mount Rushmore figure, really, in the university's life. Uh, he, he really is. Uh, all those roles, all those years, and all that goodwill, even with, again, the occasional tumble uh, he, he, he was loved and for good reason he loved back and, and loved initially and to give you an example Chris I mean he and I boy we had some whew, did we have some scrapes um, I mean one night of practice of course I could go to practice <laughs> I mean toe to toe we're screaming at each other uh, he was upset over a story I'd written about uh, um, receiver from Flint, Mark uh, Ingram. Ingram Senior, yeah. Well, what am mm -hmm. I thinking? Yeah, Mike, Mark Ingram Senior, and he was really hot, and I was just as hot back. <laughs> and then we end up after practice, <laughs> we end up back in his office talking the team and football the usual stuff for you know however long i mean that that's the way it went there were other times uh he he, he didn't like what i said about his 86 team or that that lost four games like by three points and he was upset about that and i mean he got tough with me and i got tough with him but it was in the moment and I never had a better relationship, uh, probably in um, subsequent years, than I could have had with him right up until the end. Uh, we didn't speak in the last few months because I knew his health was bad. But we had talked plenty. And that was just an example of the kind of human being he was. He appreciated uh, everyone. He felt a kinship with everyone. And uh, he was going to uh, enjoy that kind of common warmth and uh, friendship uh, for as long as he was going to be around. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, he's around for 85 years, mm -hmm. which, as I said, just sort of left us all a little bit uh, not only staggered but uh, grateful because uh, he always carried a lot of weight uh, he lost a lot at one point but he put it back on and then of course added to it and then you know it wasn't like he was eating vegetables and fish every day you know and and he, he again he liked the he liked the pop or two he wasn't a lush but but you know, he, he, he really liked, he, he liked the convivial, again, he liked the social aspects of drinking. And he, he made sure that uh, you did, uh, too, if, if you were so inclined. I mean, that was just uh, an amazing personal presence there for all those years. The idea he had such a friendship with Frank Kelly, longest-running attorney general in the state of Michigan. And Frank's still, Frank's still with us, I think, unless he just... But anyway, um, he and Frank Kelly, very, very close friends. Unlikely, but an example of the warmth you could feel and he would feel toward you and it, it just engendered all these friendships but uh, he's right up there with with Mon and Doherty uh, he was 
a scion of those guys. And uh, there's no doubt in my view uh, that he, in, in, in a different fashion, and with a couple of pockmarks along the way, uh, is going to have the same kind of legend about him that those other guys have had. Mm-hmm. And lastly, one thing that he was a part of that has endured is the land-grant trophy between Penn State and Michigan State and the attempt to make that a rivalry for yeah. the end of the year. What do you remember about how that kind of came together and George's role in it? No, that's a good question, Chris, because he did have that idea, and it seemed unlikely at the outset. Now, Penn State was Penn State, and Michigan State really wasn't on Paterno's echelon. Uh, And yet, lo and behold, um, before you know it, uh, they've got just that kind of end-of-year game going. And it's a shame that they still don't close out the year with that. I totally agree. Yeah, they had a really good thing going there. And that was George. But, But again, Chris, he could surprise you with his vision. And something that you would think was borderline comical, uh, you saw that uh, in substance was very much something that George had intuitively known all along. And uh, he he could leave you really amazed. Uh, This guy that didn't come across as necessarily an intellectual, but this extremely street smart, extremely common sense oriented guy uh, really could make some things work and coalesce. And uh, he did it in every facet of his life. Yeah, right up until the end here. I am left astounded by George Perlis. Well, it's uh, it's interesting. I appreciate you taking the time. It was nice to talk to somebody who was kind of there with him and what it was like covering him at the time. Uh, Lynn Henning, former Detroit news writer, thank you for the time. Thanks again to Lynn Henning for joining the podcast. Uh, Colton and I will probably be be back next week, uh, perhaps with some news about MSU football, if there is some news. Uh, hopefully it's good news or interesting news and not sad news like this. Uh, we'll see how things uh, shape up, but uh, that'll do it here. Uh, thanks for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, give us feedback on Twitter, anything like that. Uh, so, uh, thanks to our producer, Mike Zimmerman. I'm Chris Vanini. Shout out to the Road Dog, Jesse James, and we will see you on the other side.